Chapter Fourteen of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Fourteen. The primal duties shine aloft like stars. The excursion. It's the drain, ma'am, as is playing the fool on me. Bad luck to it. Mrs. Ostrander's third girl—the third, that is, in point of continuity, not in cotemporaneity—met her at the front door with these portentous words. Mrs. Ostrander, radiant from an hour in her old studio in her father's orchard, came in, shutting out the August morning, and repeated with a perplexity which would have had a touch of the superb in it, if it had not been something at once too pitiful and too ludicrous. The drain? The kitchen drain, ma'am, as has refused entirely to take the clay tea-leaves from the sink, but cast them back upon me hands, the vagabond. I did not know there had to be drains in sinks, Mrs. Ostrander said, with an expression of recoil. I never examined one. Could not ours be fixed to work without? What must we do about it, Julia? Yes, must have a man to it, ma'am said she of Aaron, with a sweet, superior smile. "'Very well,' said Mrs. Ostrander, with a sigh of relief. "'We shall send for a carpenter at once. Mr. Ostrander shall attend to it. You can go now, Julia. Is there anything more you wished to say?' "'It's the creamy tartar I'm lacking for me cake, ma'am, and the butter is out against dinner. But that's all, ma'am. Bearing the lemon for the pies, and the jelly strainer, as they slipped me mind when the grocer come being up to do the beds, ma'am, at the time, and the hole in the pantry windy that lets the rain upon the floor-barrel, as yourself complained of the mould and the biscuit. That's all I think of at the minute, saving Mr. Ostrander's company." "'Mr. Ostrander's company?' blankly from Mrs. Ostrander. "'It's meself as well-nigh forgot it till this blessed minute, on account of ironing day and the breakfast so late, you'll own yourself, ma'am,' penitently from Julia. But it's himself has left word with me, while he's was gone, as there would be four gentlemen to dinner." "'Have we—I suppose we have dinner enough in the house for four gentlemen?' asked Avis, a little nervously. She liked Philip to feel that his friends were welcome, and she had thought, with a certain scorn, of families that were injured by the appearance of a guest on ironing day. She was sure that a narrow hospitality must indicate either a narrow heart or a dull head. Any family in a university faculty must, of course, be expected to receive largely and irregularly. Avis was quite used to this. But she had never been able to understand why Aunt Chloe found it a necessary condition of this state of things to make the puddings herself. The political economy of any intelligent home implied a strict division of labour, upon which she was perfectly resolved not to infringe. A harmonious home, like a star in its orbit, should move of itself. The service of such a home should be a kind of blind intelligence, like a natural law, set in motion to be sure by a designer, but competent to its own final cause. Besides, as Philip had said, she had not married him to be his housekeeper. "'It's the pound and a half a stake for the two of you we has,' observed Julia peacefully. "'And the butcher is gone before Mr. Ostrander let on a word about the gentleman. And college gentlemen, ma'am, eats mostly awful.' It was not much, perhaps, to set herself now to conquer this little occasion, not much to descend from the sphinx to the drain-pipe at one fell swoop, 
not much to watch the potatoes while Julia went to market, to answer the door-bell while the jelly was straining, to dress for dinner after her guests were in the parlour, to resolve to engage a table-girl to-morrow, because Julia tripped with the gravy, to sit wondering how the ironing was to get done while her husband talked of Greek sculpture, to bring creation out of chaos, law out of disorder, and a clear head out of wasted nerves. Life is composed of such little strains, and the artistic temperament is only more sensitive to, but can never hope to escape them. It was not much, but let us not forget that it is under the friction of such atoms that women far simpler, and so for that yoke far stronger than Avis, have yielded their lives as a burden too heavy to be borne. That one day wore itself to an end at last, of course, like others of its kin. It was what Avis had already learned to call a day well wasted. She was so exhausted, what with the heat of the weather and the jar of the household machinery, that she scarcely noticed her husband, when after their guests had gone, he came in to the cool darkness of the parlour, and threw himself in the chair beside her to say easily, "'Tired, Avis?' Everybody knows moments when to be asked if one is tired seems in itself a kind of insult, and to be asked in that tone an unendurable thing. But it was not in Avis's poised and tender temper to drizzle out her little irritations as if they were matters of consequence. And her husband's greater physical delicacy had already taught the six months' wife the silence of her own. She replied, after a moment's pause, that she should soon rest. "'I am sorry to have you concerned so much in this domestic flurry,' began Ostrander. Avis turned her head with a slight contraction of the brow. To have left the colours without the drying-oil upon her easel, and surrendered her whole summer's day to the task of making one harmonious fact of the week's ironing, and four round, red, hungry alumni, and then to have her moderate, but at least gracious and orderly success, called a flurry, was one of those little dullnesses of the masculine fancy which she was loath to admit in Philip. Philip, whose fine perception, and what might be called almost a tact of the imagination, had always from the first been so winning to her. "'It must not be,' proceeded her husband, with some deepening sincerity in his affectionate tones. "'We must have better trained service for you.' "'We must, I think—I have been thinking it over to-day—have more service,' replied Avis. "'It seemed as if Julia ought to take care of two people. And there are your college debts to be got off, whatever happens. But I cannot think it right to get along so any longer.' "'Certainly not,' said Ostrander promptly. "'You must have what relief you need, my dear. Do not burden yourself to worry over those debts. At most, as I have told you, three thousand would cover the whole, and a part of that is already cleared.' Avis did not answer. The point of the debts was rather a sensitive one between them. Philip thought he had explained it all to her before their marriage. Avis thought he had not made it quite clear. Of course, she dimly understood that he had incurred pecuniary liabilities for his education, like other young men in America, whose belongings and beginnings were unendowed. But her way would have been to have straightened all that before incurring the risks and obligations of a home. Still, with Philip's good salary, and her own little income that fell to her from her mother, and surely when she herself was well at work, there need be no trouble about it. And of course, if Philip thought he explained it to her, he must have done so. It was she who had been dull. She argued this slight point with herself sometimes with an earnestness which she could not justify to herself, 
without a glance at some far crouching motive set deep like a sunken danger in her thought, at which it did not seem worth while to look scrutinizingly. Any thought of her husband which was not open as the midday to her heart and his was beneath the respect of attention. Her most distinct annoyance in this, and other little points which might occur to her, was perhaps the first baffling consciousness of a woman, that there may be laws of perspective in her husband's nature with which courtship had not made her clearly acquainted. "'It will come all right,' said Ostrander in a comfortable tone, turning to go. "'And now I must get to the college, or I shall be late.' He looked back across the long parlour. The closed blinds and dark drapery cast a moveless green shadow upon Avis's face that made her look pale and ill. Ostrander came back. He had not reached the point of conjugal culture at which a man can go happily away, leaving a shade on his wife's face. He came back, and said, more tenderly than a husband who has been six months married may be expected to speak upon an especially busy day, "'What is it, love?' "'Nothing worth getting late to recitation for, Philip.' "'You tire yourself going so far and so often to your father's. We must build you a studio at home, I think.' I do not get to father's so often as to tire myself," said Avis, with a slight emphasis, but with a brightening brow. But indeed, Philip, I begin to be a little impatient for my regular and sustained work. We have changed girls so much, and with all the commencement company, something has continually happened to embarrass my plans so far. But do not look troubled, my darling. It is not all worth one such look as that." She leaned to him lovingly. She was comforted by his tenderness. She blamed herself for adding one least anxiety of her own to his crowded cares. When he said that all this must be changed, and that she at least should not be exhausted below the level of her work, if they had to close the house, and board, her heart lightened at his thoughtfulness. Her little difficulties fused like raindrops into a golden mist. She was sure that she saw her way through them, and beyond them, to that energy of days which nature had made imperative to her. When her husband called after lecture, and asked if he might go to the studio with her, and see what she was doing, her heart lifted as it did when they two stood there beneath the apple-boughs, learning love and surrender of the falling blossoms, now so long ago. She looked her future in the face with aspiration larger, because deeper than her maiden days had known. With love, as with God, all things are possible. Avis had that day retouched the Sphinx. She turned the easel and she and her husband stood before it silently. Against a deep sky, palpitant with the purple soul of Egypt, the riddle of the ages rose with a certain majesty which Ostrander may be excused for thinking few hands could have wrought upon it. Avis had commanded with consummate skill the tint and the trouble of heat in the tropical air. It was mid-morning with the Sphinx. The lessening shadow fell westward from her brow. The desert was unmarked by foot of man or beast the sky uncut by wing of bird. The child of their union looked across them to the east. Staring straight on with calm, eternal eyes. The sand had drifted to her solemn breast. The lion's feet of her no eye can see. The eagle's wings of her are bound by the hands of unrelenting years. Only her mighty face remains to answer what the ages have demanded, and shall for ever ask of her. Upon this face Avis had spent something of her best strength. The crude Nubian features she had rechiselled, the mutilated outline she had restored, the soul of it she had created. She did not need the authority of Herodotus to tell her that the face of the Sphinx, in ages gone, was full of beauty. 
The artist would have said, who dared to doubt it? Yet she was glad to have wise men convinced that this giant ideal was once young and beautiful, like any other woman. If there were a touch of purely feminine feeling in this, it was a sort too lofty to excite the kind of smile which we bestow upon most of the consciousness of sex which expresses itself in women. A poet of our own time has articulated the speech of one phase of womanhood to one type of manhood thus. I turn from you my cheeks and eyes, my hair which you shall see no more. Alas for love that never dies, alas for joy that went before. Only my lips still turn to you, only my lips that cry, Repent. With something of the undertow of these words, Avis was at this time struggling in the making of her picture. Grave as the desert, tender as the sky, strong as the silence, the parted lips of the mysterious creature seemed to speak a perfect word. Yet in its deep eyes flitted an expectant look that did not satisfy her. Meanings were in them, which she had not mastered. Questionings troubled them, to which her imagination had found no controlling reply. "'It is a great picture,' said her husband heartily, after long and silent study. She flushed joyously. Just then she would rather hear these words from him than from the whole round world besides. "'I am not satisfied yet,' she said. "'The eyes baffle me, Philip.' "'They ought to baffle you. They ought to forever. Else you would have failed.' he answered. Let that picture go now. It isn't right to waste it on one blessed, unworthy sort of fellow like me. Let as much of the world as has been created fit to understand you have the Sphinx at once." "'I cannot be understood till I have understood myself,' said his wife, in a low voice. "'The picture must wait. Now. A while.' "'You should know best. But I hope you'll not mistake about it,' he replied yielding himself to the influence of the picture, with only a superficial attention to her words. That, I have noticed, is the peril of thoroughly trained women. Once really fit to do a great thing, their native conscientiousness and timidity become, I sometimes think, a heavier break upon their success than the more ignorant, and therefore more abandoned enthusiasm. Why, in reason, should the Sphinx wait any longer?" "'Not in reason, perhaps. Only in feeling and an artist can never be brusque with a feeling. The picture must wait, Philip, a little longer." The depth of her tone arrested his scrutiny, and the eyes which she lifted, turning from the solemn sphinx to him, held themselves like annunciation lilies in a breaking mist. It was not long after this that Professor Ostrander received imperative telegraphic summons to his old home in New Hampshire. His mother lay very ill. A succession of those little distractions incident to young people who have just yielded themselves to the monopolizing claim of their own house, together with the brief trip to the scientific convention which Ostrander had taken at the outset of the vacation, had delayed their longer and more laborious journey up to this time. Avis, upon the reception of the message, said at once that she should go with him. They set out that night, oppressed by a differing weight of feeling, of which neither cared to speak. They found themselves in the face of a calm, inevitable death, which seemed rather an awe to the son, and an anguish to the daughter. Avis trod the dreary oilcloth of the narrow stairs to the sick-room with an acute sense, such as she had never known before, of what it meant to live and die in these dumb country homes. Poor, narrow, solitary home! Poor, plain old mother, watching so long for the son who had not come! 
she forced herself to remember with some distinctness how imperative her husband's reasons had been for not coming before. She dismissed the neighbours and old friends who were in attendance, and herself, having sent Philip to rest within sound of her voice, watched out the night, for the first time in her life, alone with a dying face. She found it a reticent, fine face, on whose grey solemnity sat a strange likeness to the youth and beauty of the sun. Towards morning, when Mrs. Ostrander, stirring, spoke, she bent and kissed her passionately. "'Thank you, dear,' said the old lady, with a painless, pleasant smile. "'I have lived without a mother,' cried Avis, headlong with regret and grief. "'I am so glad I am not too late. Now you kiss me, I know what it is like.' "'Thank you, dear,' came the answer once again quietly. "'Is Philip here?' Oh, yes! Shall I speak to him?" No, no, do not disturb him," said his mother, in the pathetic, uncomplaining tone which solitude gives to gracious age. I would not break the poor boy's nap. And I like to see you. You are my daughter, my son Philip's wife. You made the portrait for me of my son. It was kind in Philip to send me his portrait, because I do not often see him. You have a gentle hand, my dear. You are a good daughter." "'I am a heart-broken daughter,' cried Avis. "'Why did you not send for us? We did not think—we did not know—Philip did not understand how feeble a summer you have had. I can see how it has been. You did not tell us.' "'I have had rather a feeble summer, yes,' said the sinking woman, with some effort of speech. "'But I have needed nothing. My son has been always a good son. I knew he would come when he could. I did not want to trouble him. I have never lacked for anything. Did you have a pretty wedding, my dear?" Her mind seemed to slip and wander a little with this, for she spoke of Philip's father, dead now these twenty years, and then she called to him, bidding him find the wedding slippers in the bureau drawer that she had saved for her son's wife, then reiterating that Philip had been a good son, and she had wanted nothing, turned to Avis once again to say so apologetically. They had got so yellow, my dear, and I had not seen your foot. Philip thought they would not fit when he was here, and I showed them to him. I'm glad you had a pretty wedding. Philip thought it was too cold for me to go. He was always careful to think when I would take cold. He was quite right. But I'm glad to know it was a pretty wedding. Raise me up, my dear, and let me look at you again." Avis lifted her with her strong young arms easily against the pillows, and the two turned to one another. In the chill before the dawning, something seemed to stir from eye to eye between them, and to crawl cold about the heart of the wife, like a thought created to be of the creeping things forever, to which rectitude of gait and outrightness of speech were forbidden. Had Philip—Philip, whose tenderness was like the creation of a new passion in the world—somehow, somewhere, in some indefined sense, neglected his mother, his old mother, sick and alone. It was not a question for a wife to ask, it was not one for a mother to answer. Like spirits the two women met each other's eyes, and neither spoke. Wait still, Ostrander—such was her poetic Puritan name—died that night. Her son was with her, tender and sorrowful to the last. But a little before the stroke of midnight, she turned her face and said, "'He was a good boy. He was always a good son to me. I never lacked for anything. 
Your father will be pleased, Philip, that you had a pretty wedding. Now I want my daughter, Avis." And in Avis's arms, and on Avis's heart, she drew her last uncomplaining breath. Philip and Avis were together after the funeral, drearily busied with all the little matters about the house which required the woman's and the daughter's touch before they left. Avis was standing reverently before an open bureau in their mother's room. She had just lifted from their old-fashioned swathings and scents of linen and lavender those sacred yellow satin shoes which had never ventured to the pretty wedding. Their first smooth, suave touch upon her palm gave her something almost like an electric shock. To conceal the intensity of her momentary feeling, of which she could not just then speak to her husband, she laid them down, and began to talk of other things. "'Philip,' she said, "'there was a woman, a young woman in grey, I think, who cried so bitterly at the funeral that she attracted my attention. Do you remember? She went up and kissed poor mother on the forehead. She had dark grey eyes. I am sure the shawl was grey. Do you know who it was?' "'It might possibly have been Jane Grey, or Susan Wanamaker. I hardly know. Both have dark eyes, and both were neighbours of my mother's,' said Ostrander thoughtfully. "'Susan Wanamaker was always very fond of her,' he added with an increasing interest. "'I think you must have heard me speak of Susan.' "'No, I do not remember that you have.' "'I did not have a suitable chance to speak to her,' proceeded Ostrander. "'I ought to have done so. It was an old friend. All the neighbours seemed to have been very kind to mother." Thus he chatted on to divert her of indifferent things. Avis said nothing just then, but presently she asked, "'Of course you added your own urgent invitation, Philip, to mine, that mother should have come to our wedding.' "'Why, of course,' said Ostrander. "'But certainly she could not have come. The weather was far too cold, and I really don't know what we could have done with her exactly. But I was so absorbed then, my darling that I am afraid I don't remember about it all as clearly as I ought." In truth, he did not, and it was this very fact, perhaps, that Avis brooded over with the most definite discontent. She had half feared, standing there with the poor little old wedding-shoe in her hand, that he would turn to her, flashing across it, and ask her if she thought him capable of a slight to his mother. That he had not even perceived that the circumstances were suggestive of neglect was in itself peculiarly painful to her. His nature had slipped so lightly away from an experience under which her own was writhing, that she felt at a loss to understand him. She folded the white slipper with tender fingers, to take it home. Perhaps Philip could not be expected to know what a sacredness it would have added to her marriage-day to have worn it. Perhaps no man could. Perhaps this was one of the differences, one of the things that it meant to be a man, not to understand such matters. Gently she tried to think so. But she stood looking across the slope of the near churchyard to the locked, oppressive hills, with a dull pain for which she wished she could have found the tears. When her husband came up and laid his hand upon her shoulder, stooping to see what she saw, she pointed to the mountains, and said, "'How lean they look! How parched! And she lived, shut in here, seventy years!' "'Don't grieve so,' said Ostrander tenderly. "'Poor mother would never have been happy away from them. She always told me so when I asked her." He kissed her, and went downstairs to see about boxing the portrait for the morning's express. End of chapter 14